We're going to take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Text for today. Taking a little break from the letter of Paul to the Philippians. We'll do an Easter series. So we're going to be working through the very end of chapter 52 and chapter 53 of Isaiah over the next three weeks. So today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. So Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. Please follow along as I read. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word today, and we thank you for the gift that it is to us. Oh, how we love your word. Our desire should be to meditate on it all the days of our lives. It is your word that makes us wiser than our enemies, wiser than our sinful nature, wiser than this rebellious world around us, wiser than Satan and his hordes. And your word is ever with us. Oh, what great gift we have to hold it in our hands, to read it. Not only that, to memorize it, to guard, to guard it in our hearts, to know it in our minds. But by it, through it, we have more understanding than all our teachers. For it's your testimonies, the truths of God that we find in these pages. They are more wise than the aged, more knowledgeable than the educated and academic. For they are the words of the God who created the entirety of this universe. And so we come to them today. We come to them seeking to taste of these sweet words that are sweeter than honey to our mouths. That through them to gain understanding and therefore reject any false way that might be laid before us. Or give us grace today. Let me faithfully present your word clearly that we might understand it. As you have laid convictions from this text on my own heart, may they truly be communicated today. That your people might be convicted by your word as well. We pray this not only for ourselves, but we pray this for your church across the globe. We pray today that as your church meets, that your word would be faithfully presented, and that the hearts of your people would be drawn to you, and their minds would find in you their satisfaction, 
their lives in turn would be affected as they seek to live in a way that honors and pleases you. Lord, we pray for Faith Bible Church right across the road here on Briggs as they meet today. Lord, give grace to them, Pastor Bob and Pastor Kevin, as they meet. We pray for Pastor Vaughn and Faith, our First Baptist Church and and. Bolingbrook, Lord, as they meet today, that you would just give give grace to them today. Lord, may, may we be people of your word that hope and depend on you, and may it be demonstrated in the way that we approach you. And as we read this morning in Psalm 29, may you receive the glory that is due you as we see the splendor of your holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're uh, starting a new series here for just the next three weeks, short series, as we come up to Easter, and it's titled The Works of Christ Alone Save. And so we're looking at the, this messianic prophecy of Isaiah 52 and 53. And while we have a number of messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament, and uh, s- some more than just this section in Isaiah, this is probably considered the most significant, the most uh, clear, uh, the most bold of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And here we come to see the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. As Isaiah is prophesying, he's prophesying about the return of God's people from exile and the desire for them to come back to uh, Jerusalem and to God's house and to God's nation and all the joyful things that will occur. And yet, As he is doing so, he also reminds them that their return is ultimately not what saves them. The fact is, Israel has quite a sordid history in regards to their relationship with God. And that no matter how hard Israel may have worked, there was never a time in which they ultimately saved themselves. And in respect as well, we see that ultimately their destruction is not ultimately brought about by themselves either. As they live in sin, it is God who brings them into captivity. And it is God who brings them out. It's ultimately God who saves and hears. As Isaiah prophesies, he reminds them that their need, their desperate need is of a servant who will actually act wisely, who will actually live in such a way to fulfill their need of eternal salvation. And even even throughout the history of Israel, we see this, this truth permeating through it. It's by faith that Abraham's Acts were counted as righteousness. As ultimately, as he takes his son up to the mountain to sacrifice, it is God who provides the ram to take his place. It is in the Mosaic law that though all these laws are there, God knows man's sinfulness. And so what does he institute? He institutes the sacrificial system so that their sins might be placed on these animals and their sins might be covered by their blood. Ultimately, all pointing to the fact that one would need to come who would be the ultimate sacrifice, the one sacrifice to end all others. And that through this one sacrifice, 
God would win salvation for His people. And that person is Jesus Christ. As we come to this text, and as we read in verse 13, Behold, my servant, and the description of him as high and lifted up and exalted, and yet marred beyond human semblance, beyond human form. We, we know with our New Testament eyes that this is Jesus Christ. It is clearly he that is being referenced. And here in this text, as we, as we seek to lay out these works of Christ that alone save, we're going to, the title of this sermon is The Work of Christ That Reveals His Salvation. The work of Christ that reveals His salvation. And so here, here Isaiah begins to present this servant again. He's, he's, he's taken up that theme before in the book, but now he comes with greater clarity to present this. And so we're going to see how it is in Jesus Christ that our salvation is ultimately and fully revealed. And then as we get into uh, Isaiah 53 next week, and then on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the work of Christ that bears our sin. And then on Easter Sunday, the work of Christ that makes us righteous. So here today, the work of Christ that reveals His salvation, and then the work of Christ that bears our sin, and then the work of Christ that makes us righteous so that we affirm that it is the work of Christ alone that saves us. And this is a theme that we just, we just can't move away from. We can't, we can't in, in some ways be like, oh, I, I, you know, intellectually I understand that now, and you know, I can keep moving on because this is a theme that we must come back to over and over and over again. Even as God's people, even as members of gospel community, we are meant to come back to the fact that Jesus Christ alone is our only hope in life and death. And that we are utterly dependent upon Him. In fact, the two ordinances that, that are instituted in the church are meant to remind us of that very thing. In baptism, we are baptized into His death and raised to His resurrection. We affirm through baptism that it's only our union in Christ that has saved us. It's, it's this picture, this symbol, it's meant to represent what God has done in us through Christ. And in turn, the communion that we together share with God is through the body broken and the blood shed of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the only reason we have communion with God. And so we're going to be looking at these in greater detail here from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So today's main point is this. Christ is humanity's only assurance of finding salvation. Christ is humanity's only assurance of finding salvation. And so I have three questions I want to ask of the text and seek to answer today. First of all, what is humanity's future apart from Christ? Secondly, what does Christ, or how does Christ bring assurance? And then thirdly, how should humanity respond? So in our text today, I want us to see the future that humanity has apart from Christ. How does Christ then bring this assurance of this salvation? And then how should humanity respond to that? So let's look at our text here with this first question. What is humanity's future apart from Christ? Christ. What is humanity's future apart from Christ? 
Well, as we look in our text here, we see it begins with Christ being presented, and it, and it describes who he is. He shall be high and lifted up, shall be exalted. And that is definitely the, the expectation of all of Israel, that the Christ would come and he would be this glorious figure. And yet, then you have 14. Many, many were astonished at you. His appearance so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that the children of mankind. And so we see in, in this text, even the connection back to what we looked at earlier in Philippians 2, where he is the very form of God and yet takes on the form of man, becoming a servant. And he goes on to say, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings have shut their mouth because of him. We'll come back to that in a minute. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. And there's two phrases in there that help me understand what humanity's future would be apart from Christ. Has not been told them and have not heard. This text helps us see that apart from Christ and apart from the revelation of grace, that we would be people who have never been told of the salvation through Jesus Christ or who have never heard of it. So the answer I have here is each person is unable to even know the saving grace of God apart from the work of Christ. Each person is unable to even know the saving grace of God apart from the work of Christ. Because Christ comes as the revelation of God to us, and of God's work to us. In the Old Testament, that was veiled. The presentation was always of Christ, but it was presented in pictures. Christ was the rock um, that had to be struck so that water might come out. Christ was the lamb that had to be slain so that the blood could cover their sins. Christ was there throughout. He was, he was the presentation of the saving grace of God, and yet it was veiled. It was pictured. It was symbolized representing, pointing to ultimately what we see here as Isaiah describes him, the servant who would come. So that mankind might know and hear. In fact, Paul even references this aspect. How will they believe if they have not heard? And well, how will they hear if it is not preached to them? Blessed are those, are the feet of those who bring good news. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. In fact, if you look here in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, notice what it says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And then we read about those who have not told, who have not, who have not been told, who have not heard. That is where mankind sits in our sinfulness, in our rebellion. We have not been told apart from God's grace of the glorious salvation that is in Christ. We have not heard. It must be revealed to us. The good news must be proclaimed to us. And Jesus comes to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He comes to declare to us the the, the ultimate understanding of that grace. The no longer veiled, no longer symbolized, but here in flesh and blood before us 
is, as John describes him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Apart from the work of Christ, we live in a reality of not being told and of not having heard. And within that reality, we are still responsible for our sinfulness and rebellion. As Roman 1 declares, God will hold us responsible for what has been revealed to us, even His Godhead that we have rebelled against. And so the goal here in this text is that the servant would come, so what? So that they might see and they might understand. Christ has come to remove this unableness, inability of each person to know the saving grace of God. So how does Christ, second question, how does Christ bring this assurance of of finding salvation? How does He enable us to then be able to see His salvation, to know it? Gives us an assurance of this fact. The answer here is that Christ humbled Himself in order to sprinkle His saving grace on His people. Christ humbled Himself in order to sprinkle his saving grace on his people. And so we read that, that he will act wisely. Um, another uh, understanding of this or translation of this is that he shall prosper, but the ideas go together. He will act in a way that seems very right or seems very prosperous, one that will produce the effect that is desired. And that's how he's described as wise or prosperous. As the servant comes, he does what is necessary to produce the effect that God desires. So he is the high and lifted up and exalted one. He is the very form of God. He comes in the flesh. He became a servant. But not only just a servant, what did he come to do? He came to be marred. He came to be beaten. He came to be slain. As Philippians 2 reminds us, he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. So the picture here, even in Isaiah, is of the one who is truly God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who takes on human form, humbles himself, and becomes man even to death on a cross. And in turn, it is through this that this act of sprinkling many nations occurs. That's that's why you have that word there, so. So shall he. Through the fact that he is truly God and yet became truly man, humbled himself to the point of being marred to such a degree that his, his semblance as a man is utterly taken away. So it is as he hangs on a cross. It's more like a piece of flesh than a man. And yet it is through this that he sprinkles many nations. Some have looked at this and seen a picture of baptism in it. But I don't think that's the best picture we can connect to this. 
rather as we are here in the Old Testament. And while baptism definitely did occur in the Old Testament, we ultimately see that connection to the Old Testament in the work of John the Baptist as the last of the Old Testament prophets, baptizing for the repentance of sin. I think the best connection here is in the sacrificial system, where the blood of the animal sacrifice were sprinkled sprinkled on the altar, sprinkled on the person to make things holy, set apart for God. And here it is the work of Jesus Christ that sprinkles the saving grace of God upon His people. And as that blood, the precious blood of the truly God and truly man, in, in figurative and our, our, our maybe um, biblical imagination as that hits us through his death, his sacrifice as the Lamb of God, as that blood like it would have truly done in the Old Testament, as that blood hits us, it is through his work that we are redeemed. Through this work of Christ that our hearts are regenerated and made new. But that work does not only entail the fact that He sprinkles it on us, but that in turn, that, that the other picture of that sprinkling is that there's a, there's a, there's a reality that is experienced by the one who is hit by the blood of the Lamb. So in the Old Testament, you knew you were hit by blood when you were sprinkled. It wasn't figurative in that sense. And in our sense, how does, how does this sprinkling of blood occur in such a way that we know it? It's that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented to us, we hear and believe. We respond to it. That is how we truly experience the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we read here. He sprinkles it on many nations. And so, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And for that which has not been told them, they see. For that which they have not heard, they understand. Which leads us to how should humanity respond? As Christ humbles himself and gives himself as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, slain to pay the penalty of our sins so that our sins might be nailed on his cross and sprinkles us with his saving grace. How do his people respond? Our answer here is this. Each person must listen, see, and believe the saving work of Christ. That's how they respond. They listen, they see, they believe the saving work of Christ. Truly, there are people in this world who will not, who will not benefit from the work of Christ, who will not receive this sprinkling. In fact, we can see this indicated, implied in the text. And the implication is not to say that there are some, there's some uh, different cultures that won't get sprinkled here when it says he shall sprinkle many nations, rather than saying he shall sprinkle all nations. It helps us understand, though, that not all people will be saved. We know in Revelation that it describes people from all tribes, tongue, kindred, nations. There'll be people from every culture saved. And yet we know 
that that does not meant to imply that all people from every culture will be saved. There will be many. And that's why it's the sprinkling of His grace on His people, on the people that respond. Because if, if we receive regeneration, the sprinkling of Jesus Christ's blood upon us, the atonement of our sin, we will respond. So kings shut their mouths because of Him. They stop speaking. And instead, they listen. They listen to the Gospel. They hear the Gospel. How will they hear? Well, it's preached to them. And when it's preached, they listen. But not only that, he goes on to say, that which has not been told to them, they then see. They then began to see, which apart from Christ, they would never know. But now they have the opportunity to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. So they hear the Gospel, and in looking at the Gospel, they see Jesus Christ as their Savior. They see Jesus Christ as their need. They see Jesus Christ as their King. And then he says, that which they have not heard, they then understand. Which I connect to the next verse. Who has believed what has he has heard from us? I think that understanding is meant to be connected to this idea of belief. They understand it in such a way that they put their faith and their confidence in it. This is their hope. And apart from Christ, apart from His work, they would never hear. They would never be able to listen or see or believe in Jesus. And so Jesus alone is the one who comes revealing His salvation. And He is our only assurance of finding salvation. It is only in listening to Him, in His words, in His work. They listen because of Him. They see because of Him, and they see Him. And they understand because of Him, and in understanding, they put their faith in And that is true of each one of us as believers here. If you're a believer here today, it's true of you. You are only saved because God graciously revealed His truth through Jesus Christ to you. I may have used an instrument like me or someone else who preached the gospel to you. He may have used an instrument of another Christian who opened up God's Word and gave it to you. He may have used the instrument of just His Word directly. One day you opened up the Word of God, and read it. And in it you see Jesus Christ, and in it you see His glorious sacrifice, and in it you see that if you would put your faith in Him, you can be saved from your sins and the punishment of your sins. All of those scenarios only occur because Christ humbled Himself. And gave himself as a sacrifice. Preaching and then in reality being a proclamation of the gospel and the kingdom of God. There are application questions here. Four of them. Are you, member, are you a member of gospel community? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Again, this is not 
saying you're a member of a specific church or an organization or whatever. It's saying, are you a member of God's body, of God's people? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone? And if, if you have not, we would love to talk to you and explain that more to you. We'd love to connect with you. If, if your desire to do that, you can do that now. Turn from your sins and trust in Him. Repent of your rebellion and seek to live in submission and allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. And that's something you do right now. And if that's you and uh, you desire to, to uh, know more about that or help to understand what's the next step after putting your faith in Jesus Christ, we'd love to talk to you about that. So please, please contact us. Second question, what can we know about God here? God is gracious to give us what we cannot gain in and of ourselves. God is so gloriously good in giving to us what we do not deserve. And He's willing to pay the cost of it, as we see in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then how can we enjoy God? We can understand that part of Him being high and lifted up is His willingness to humble Himself and sacrifice so that He might bring us into relationship with Him. And so we're meant to experience that kind of feeling of, of, of joy in the fact of knowing that we've been saved from eternal destruction and damnation. Not by any works of our own, but by someone else. And when the building was burning, he ran in, grabbed us, and saved us. And now, now every life, every breath we breathe of life is one we don't deserve, is one we could not be taking. And yet Christ has granted us that. And as we think about it, as a Christian, you know, it's not just physical breath, but it's it's now living physically in this world with as new creations in Christ Jesus. This new life that He's granted us, that apart from Him we would never even know, we would never experience. I think it would, it's good for Christians to remember there's nothing that they have that hasn't been given to them. Nothing that we have that hasn't been earned. We are desperate dependent on grace. And that's what's meant to motivate us and fuel us in life. As we go through the study of the work of Christ alone saved, we can definitely see how this would be good for an unsaved person to hear. They need to know to trust in Christ alone to save them. But we need to be reminded that that is who we are. We are people saved by Christ alone. And as we live this life, we're meant to find our enjoyment in the fact that we have a Savior who did all for us, that there's no, there's no doubt meant to be left in our minds. If our faith is in Him, we need never doubt. And then how can we glorify God? Well, we can continue to listen to His glorious gospel. We can continue to see his glorious face. And we can continue to grow in our faith and our belief in Him, our confidence in Him. 
We grow in our confidence in Him that our hope, our comfort is in death is in Him. And so we need not fear anything that might, might, might cost us in this life because in death, the, 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 the greatest cost of this life, the loss of our own life, in death, He is our hope and He is our comfort. And there's a lot of things we can fear. And so we need to grow in our faith. And so how do we do it? We continue to listen and hear these glorious truths of the gospel. We continue to see uh, these glorious truths that are revealed to us about Jesus Christ. We continue to see him in greater, greater splendor. And we continue to understand and believe. And so eradicating these unworthy and unhelpful fears that exist as Christ is our hope in death, but Christ is also our hope in life. What does that mean? As we see, as we listen, we gain greater understanding of God's glorious truths, as we see his face with greater and greater clarity, we live differently. We don't just look to our future and eternity differently, but we live right now differently. Because of who he is, there are sacrifices that we are now willing to make that we wouldn't have made before. To spread his gospel, to spread his name, we are willing to give of ourselves because we know that this life is but a vapor. We are grass that withers. We are willing to give of ourselves in this life. There are things that we're willing to say no to because we know they do not lead us to greater joy and ultimately bring glory to God. And so we reject them. Sometimes even things that are appropriate, that would be fine for us to enjoy, we say no to because we don't want to be distracted in this life from that which is most significant and most glorious to live and serve Jesus Christ. And we have this desire to follow Jesus Christ in such a way that as, as servants of God, we also act wisely and live prosperously in this life. In, in one sense, like as I, as I was studying this text here in verse 13, like this, my servant shall act wisely. And then as I connected it to as a follower of Christ, I want to act wisely or be prosperous as well. It reminded me again of Philippians 2, have this mind that is in Christ Jesus. Live in such a way that thinks and acts like him. Be wise, be prosperous. And while we are not wise and prosperous in, in seeking to be the salvation of the world as Christ is, we are wise and prosperous when we know Christ is the salvation of our world and we point our world to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for these truths today. We thank You for the opportunity to look at them. Lord, it's only by Your grace You've revealed salvation to us. Lord, we could have rightly been left untold. We could have rightly been left having never heard this glorious gospel. And in doing so, Christ could have not humbled himself, suffered, and died. And yet, in your glorious plan and providence, Christ did. And we have known and we have heard. 
And now I pray that we would trust. In Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.